This is William and Lonsdale, a podcast about the legal ecosystem in Victoria and the fascinating people and stories that make it tick. Today, your host Michael Green has an illuminating conversation with his honour Tony Parsons, whose career includes being principal of the criminal firm Slade and Parsons, eight years as managing director of Victoria Legal Aid, and eight years serving as the supervising magistrate of the Victorian Drug Court from 2012 to the end of 2020. When Tony left school, he actually began a science degree with a view to study medicine, but activism and the politics of the 70s often diverted his attention. Issues such as protesting conscription to the Vietnam War and advocating for drug policy reform soon made Tony think a law degree could be more useful in effecting real change. So after a five-year hiatus, Tony returned to study as a mature-age student and relished the opportunity. It was fabulous. I really enjoyed it. I just matured so much. I'd I'd accomplished so much and grown up so much. You know, from the age of 23 to 29, they've hugely developmental years. And all of a sudden, I went back into this gorgeous academic institution. I think I had eight or nine or ten formal lecture hours a week. So I went from being busy during Monday to Friday and driving taxis all weekend to having the luxury of just studying. And I was fascinated by the law and the lecturers at Melbourne were wonderful and interesting and generous. I had a ball. guest today on Lives in the Law is his honour, Tony Parsons. Good morning, Tony. Hello, Michael. Great to be here. Thank you very much for coming in. Tony, there's an old saying that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Tell us a bit about the tree that you fell from, your <laughs> mum and dad, your siblings, <laughs> your education, your upbringing. Well, um, mum and dad both um, had uh, Irish roots. Uh, they were both strongly practising Catholics and they got together just at the end of the Second World War, just after it finished. Dad was in New Guinea for three years and mum and he met at the barracks, married uh, in 51. Then I came along in 53. I've got a, a, a sister a year apart on either side of me, so they, they got to work on the family and didn't waste any time. We uh, grew up in first Ashburton and then East Malvern. So I went through the Catholic education system, primary school on top of the hill there in High Street, Ashburton, St Michael's. And then after grade three, I went to De La Salle, uh, Catholic boys' school in Malvern. Uh, so it was a, um, a very Catholic family, traditional nuclear family, a good place to grow up in, in Ashburton. Uh, and East Malvern was a, a, a good place too. It was a little bit closer to my secondary school. Uh, and uh, so that's where I came from before I started to think about tertiary education. From where I sit, that sounds like a very typical Melbourne upbringing of the 1950s. Yeah, it definitely was. It was an interesting educational experience. The educational values at the school in the 60s was different than they are today. 
big emphasis on cricket and football and cadets. I think the 60s and the late 50s were the, really the end of the days of spare the rod, spoil the child, because education isn't based on that kind of tyranny anymore. So there were challenging times. Uh, you know, we got through and uh, I managed to get a mark at the end of my secondary education that got me foot in the door at Monash, just. Certainly never a um, uh, academically oriented, but I got through. It was a good thing that I did because it was uh, defined where I went from there. So you land at Monash in the early 70s to do science and your longer-term goal is to transfer across and do medicine. Monash, of course, from when it opened in, I think, the early 60s through to at least the late 70s, early 80s, was the number one hotbed of student politics for the whole of Australia. Yeah. What was it like being at Monash at that time? Well, the start of it was just amazing. Uh, I started there in 1972. Vietnam was still on. Conscription was still on. It felt like we were in the trenches. There were uh, demonstrations, there were occupations of various buildings at various uh, times in protest to a whole range of things, but but the focus was on uh, conscription in Vietnam. It was a tough time in some respects. I was uh, certainly in, an activist in those years and was in the latter years of my secondary education. I had a very strong view about uh, the impropriety of, of conscription, so joined very much in uh, those political movements. Um, I was really passionate about that. And then the end of 72, the whole world changed. Whitlam was elected, um, Billy McMahon lost the election, and everything changed overnight. Conscription was abolished, Vietnam for this country finished, uh, tertiary fees were abolished, education at the tertiary level was free. It's hard to imagine now people paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to get a decent education. Family law system changed, legal aid was introduced, there was just a revolution. So when I came back to university in 1973, feeling really relieved. (laughs) Uh, The activist urge was still there and me and my friends looked around and said, well, what's left? And there wasn't much left. Um, But what there was, in fact, there were a lot of things left, but what we spotted was uh, the drug laws. I was very um, quick to pick that up as an issue. The principal of uh, a uh, black market controlled uh, industry for an activity which was A, victimless, and B, while not harmless, certainly less harmful in terms of all kinds of drug use than alcohol or tobacco. And I thought the laws were just completely out of out of place. And so I started to take an interest in that and started off a student uh, group called the Monash Marijuana Action Group. Uh, at that time across Australia, a number of groups were taking interest in the drug laws. So that's what got my uh, political attention in the early 70s after Whitlam uh, got in, so 72, 73 and onwards. And how did that affect your studies? Well, it got to the point, see, I went to do science because I wanted to transfer to medicine, but as I mentioned, I was never academically at the high end. I was never in that echelon of distinctions, 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 and I never looked like I was going to get a science degree that would allow me to cross over to medicine. So I lost interest in the latter couple of years. So in 75, 76, got all of my science subjects bar one, and I still have to go back to Monash University to get that one last subject to get my BSc. Uh, I don't think I will. are you going to do it? No, I don't think I will. I think I found a niche. But the great thing about being involved in drug policy work was that as I got further and further into it, it became apparent that the 
the easiest way to affect sensible change would be to get across and become part of the machinery of government in Spring Street. So that's what created my interest in law. When I'd lost interest in science, I had to kiss medicine goodbye. It was never going to happen. But then I thought, well, gee, if I could get a law degree, uh, that would give me some leverage to get into parliament and to really uh, make a difference at that level. But you didn't go straight into law, did you? You had a maybe a five or six year hiatus where you were oh, yeah. running a research institute. Yes. Well, once I finished at Monash in uh, 75, uh, I joined an organisation that had just started up in Melbourne called the Cannabis Research Foundation of Australia. And really, it was a lovely name, but it, it, it didn't do research. It was purely a conservative lobby group that would lobby the community and the government, uh, decision makers, uh, based on the evidence about why it was essential that we review and change our various drug policies. Now, the director of that organisation unfortunately was busted selling cannabis out the back door of the uh, the office and he decided it was time to go. So he moved up to uh, Sydney and uh, asked me if I'd uh, take over the uh, directorship of that organisation, uh, which was a voluntary organisation and I wasn't paid for it. But from 75 to 80, I was the director of the Cannabis Research Foundation. And that was um, a very conservative but effective lobby. That was full-time, and on the weekends I drove taxis to pay my rent. Then, uh, as we developed more support and got uh, greater acceptance, the organisation expanded. I was involved in the establishment of then of the Australian Marijuana Party, which was a far more, not radical, but more aligned with student politics kind of uh, aggressive campaigning. So they would organise, uh, they put candidates up. JJ McRoach stood for the Senate in 1977. They organised protests, demonstrations, leafleting, social disobedience, that kind of stuff. Now, that was just another approach to tackling the same problem. Um, I was very much committed to the more conservative evidence-based reasons why we should change policy, but I was also very much involved quietly with this much more radical approach. And you're attracted to law because you thought that would be an effective way to bring about change was to do law and become a politician. Yes, exactly, exactly. The lobbying stuff was hard work. Um, you know, we were relying on subscriptions uh, from people. We were relying on the sales of the T-shirts and the newspapers and the paraphernalia and donations. Uh, and, you know, we had an office uh, in uh, the city uh, that we were, sorry, in uh, Greville Street in Paran that we were um, having to run. We had a printing press out the back that we were also running. And that, that printing press was printing our material for the politics, but it was also printing uh, materials for the unions who were paying for that printing work. So we, we had to be creative about creating revenue streams. And I thought, blow this, I'm doing, you know, of a 60 hour week, I'm doing 50 hours working on funding and 10 hours of politicking. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to be in Spring Street? They pay you to actually uh, make a difference. You had five or six years off from being a student when you went back to law, you went to Melbourne Uni, not Monash. What was it like being a mature age student after five or six years away from the books? It was fabulous. I really really enjoyed it. I just matured so much. I'd, I'd accomplished so much and grown up so much. You know, from the age of 23 to 29, they've hugely developed mental years. And all of a sudden, I went back into this gorgeous academic institution. I think I had eight or nine or 10 formal lecture hours a week. So I went from being busy during Monday to Friday and driving taxis all weekend to having the luxury of just studying. And I was fascinated by the law and the lecturers at Melbourne were wonderful and interesting 
and generous. Uh, I had a ball. Um, because I'd almost got my science degree, they let me do the uh, LLB in three years rather than four, and I ripped through it. Uh, uh, and I didn't borrow, uh, I didn't drive taxis while I was studying, I just focused on my study. So I was getting further and further into debt, but um, we all sorted that out at the end. Uh, and I love Melbourne. It was a great institution and I thoroughly enjoyed my time there. When you finish your degree, you've got to do articles. There aren't many options available to you, not having a legal background. Where did you finish up doing your articles and how did that come about? Well, I, I had an interest in doing industrial law and administrative law when I finished university and, and I thought they were the pathways into Spring Street and I was fascinated by them, but I couldn't get uh, into any of the firms that practiced that law terribly competitive even back in the uh, early 80s. But there was a criminal law firm in St Kilda that knew of me through the political uh, years and they contacted me and uh, hounded me. Um, you know, they said, no, you've got to come and work for us. You must, you must, you must. And I successfully got knocked back trying to get into the firms that would have given me the work I wanted to do. I ended up going back to them saying, yeah, I'd love to work for you. It's the only job I could get. And uh, they uh, signed me up, and they were a wonderful firm, the Slade and Webb. They are in Fitzroy Street, St Kilda, right in the middle of the action in the early 80s. So that's they taught me uh, my craft in criminal law. They were very conscientious, very effective lawyers, uh, and they uh, ran that practice uh, doing almost all of their own appearance work. So I very quickly uh, had to grow my advocacy skills. That was the way that you practiced criminal law and learnt the law was by going to court and actually working in the law rather than just sending off the interesting cases to the barristers. Two years after I started with them, they both had the itch to go to the bar, both of the partners. So they came to me and said, will you buy our practice? You can have it for a song. We just don't want to shut it down. Would you buy it? And they literally did sell it to me for a song, an ongoing practice that had a great reputation in the criminal law sector, especially for drug work. And that derailed my plans because so as excited as I was to take the practice over, all of a sudden I was a small business person rather than streaming ahead towards what I was hoping was going to be Spring Street. And I was my attention turned not to the politics, but to where I was going to get the money to pay the secretaries over the Christmas break uh, and how I was going to pay the rent and all of the salaries and all of those things. So that, that really did distract me. Lives in the Law is proudly sponsored by City Maps Illustrated. Their recent publication, The Melbourne Map, is a celebration of our wonderful city, this stunning hand-drawn illustration, which took more than three years to create, is available as an art print, jigsaw puzzle and calendar. The perfect acquisition for your home, office or corporate gifting. More information can be found on their website, themelbournemap.com.au. So, Tony, you've bought the practice of Slade and Webb. There's been a name change to Slades and Parsons and you've moved into the city because there was a lot less work for you in St Kilda Prostitution had been legalised and therefore street crime had diminished significantly. Absolutely, yeah. Better to be in town doing white-collar crime, less relied on legal aid and work of that kind. That's right, yeah. And and in the Kennett era, which it was then, um, the legal aid were under real financial pressure and it was pretty hard to keep a practice going on their rates. I had to broaden the base of the firm and get it into town. But then in the door walks what you would think is the golden goose. Yeah. A, a big case yeah. against the Kennett government with the Grand Prix. You've got high-level, well-known silks clamouring to do the case with you. Did this save the practice? 
I was a fantastic boost. It really was. The Save Albert Park uh, organisation ramped up their protests uh, at the Grand Prix site. Hundreds and hundreds of people, just over 700 to be precise, were charged during that two-year period of protests while the Grand Prix track was being constructed. Now, I had a, a family member involved in those protests and she came to me and said, we are all being charged and we don't have a lawyer. I said, oh, well, I'd happily look at the case and happily act on a no-win, no-fee basis. We would pick a select group of defendants and uh, try everybody's case based on a select group of five or 10 or 20 defendants. And the police agreed, yes, there's 200 charged. We'll just run a case on a select group. And if you win, we'll withdraw charges against the others. And if we win, um, then uh, you'll concede and plead guilty. So we ran our cases and I found a magnificent group of barristers who were very keen to represent these people on a no-win, no-fee basis as well. So Jack Hammond, Robert Richter, Ron Merkel and others just stepped forward and took the briefs and ran fabulous defences. And it turned out there were so many holes in the Grand Prix Act that the prosecutions, one after another, fell. Each time they fell, costs were awarded uh, against the police in the favour of the defendants, which meant that no one actually worked for no fee. We all were well remunerated. And in fact, of the 700 we represented, every single one of them was acquitted. There were only a small number of people who were ever convicted of offences under the Grand Prix Act, and they're the people that didn't come to us. Um, so it was a really uh, great thing to be happening in the early 90s. And it also got me some important notoriety, both with the Law Institute and more broadly with uh, the, the general public and with uh, Spring Street. I was getting some press in, in page three of The Age for criticising the approach of the government in these prosecutions and criticising the government's approach to arresting demonstrators. And so I was advocating for Save Albert Park and also um, doing some good work uh, in the courts and that got me some uh, notoriety. I, I got a bit of attention, which was very helpful. 1999, the ALP win the election with Steve Brax as the Premier. Rob Holds was Attorney General. He's looking for a new head, someone to head up Victoria Legal Aid. There hasn't been much funding you apply for the job and you're successful. You're appointed. Yes. How did that come about? Well, it was, it was quite remarkable. My friends in the Law Institute kept prodding me to put my hand up for the job. They knew I had a political profile, knew I was passionate about legal aid. It's an incredibly important institution, an incredibly important element to have in terms of developing, of, of maintaining confidence in our democratic system, that everyone have access to the law. So they kept prodding me and I said no. I litigated against VLA three times in the previous three years because of their restrictive approach to granting legal aid and I'd been successful in the Supreme Court and I was more their opponent than their advocate. But eventually I weakened and said to my wife, well, what do you think? And she said, well, you know, you're not going to ever make a billion dollars practising criminal law. Um, you've been doing it for a long time. Why don't you try something different? So I put my hand up and in the meantime, contacted a corporate governance person at KPN 
KPMG and asked them to teach me about internal audit, corporate governance, finances, human resources. And uh, this incredibly generous partner at KPMG took me on board and gave me half day to full day tuition using all of the expertise at KPMG on uh, governance and all of those things I needed to know about to run a significant public sector organisation because I could barely manage my six-person legal practice. They did that and refused to take payment and said to me, we've got... Um, no interest in being paid for this work. But if you ever see a, a, a tender and KPMG's name is on it, all we ask you to do is acknowledge that we've got a social conscience and we're happy to help people build lives and build a better community. That was fabulous. And I managed to talk my way through the interview process. And when I was interviewed by the Attorney General, Mr. Hulls, he said, you know, I don't know if you can manage. And I said, well, I don't know either, um, but I'm ready to give it a try. Um, so he gave me the job. He clearly liked the fact that I was progressive in my outlook and probably too progressive for him at times. In any event, I got the gig. And for the first six months, I did nothing. I had a most wonderful executive team that I inherited from the previous managing director. The organisation had been slashed in terms of its state and Commonwealth funding, so it was very lean and quite traumatised, I thought, when I arrived um, because lots and lots of people had, had lost their jobs. But I had a great executive team, so I just watched them for six months before I ventured out of my cocoon and started to make some changes. And what changes did you make? We did some fabulous stuff. Victoria Legal Aid has a big practice, 200, 300 lawyers nowadays, and they had 200 when I was there. So they run a big practice internally, but there's a lot of work they can't do and they can't do everything. A great deal of the work, maybe 60% of it goes to the private profession pursuant to legal aid grants parcels of money for the profession to act for people. The system for getting a grant of aid was a nightmare. You'd have to write submissions to legal aid and they'd scrupulously go over every submission and they were gone over by people who weren't lawyers and they'd knock you back and you'd have to write a new submission. We ended up spending the grant of aid just trying to secure the grant of aid. It was a nightmare. One of the early things we did, and it was the inspiration of my grants director at the time, was to take the decision for a grant of aid away from Victoria League aid and put it into the hands of the private practitioner who was doing the work and audit their books, audit their files to make sure they were applying VLA's guidelines. Now, it was high-risk stuff. The critics of the of the suggestion were saying it's like giving the key to the grog cupboard to the alcoholics. They want the money in the legal aid fund and you're letting them make the decision about whether they fund their clients or not. So we took it to the profession. The profession said, yes, please. We set up an auditing process, which involved a fraction of the number of staff that we were employing to process the grants in the old way. And it worked. We found we were getting the private profession to do grants that were more accurately aligned with our grants guidelines than our in-house staff. And the practitioners loved it because there was no argument, no back and forward about the guidelines, no arguing with other people at VLA who didn't have a law degree. They just made the decision. And as long as their court files that we audited regularly reflected the application of the guidelines, they were fine. So that was a massive change. And it massively reduced the cost for us of administering a grant of legal aid and it massively reduced the cost to them. And people were agog, but it worked. Uh, The other thing that happened was that the real estate prices were going through the roof. And the interest on monies held in lawyers' trust accounts goes to a statutory bank account called the Public Purpose Fund. Right, So if if I give my um, uh, 
conveyance lawyer a million dollars to buy a property. Um, I don't get the interest off that. It sits in a Westpac bank account or any bank account, and the interest on that goes to the public purpose fund for distribution at the direction of the, um, the government into good purposes, public purpose fund. The real estate market was booming. The public purpose fund was um, full of money and the Attorney General redirected those funds to the public purpose of providing legal aid to people who couldn't afford legal representation. So rather than the Attorney taking legal aid funding increases through the usual budget cycle, we were having millions of dollars pumped into our coffers through the Public Purpose Fund. And that enabled us to do some extraordinary things. We had offices in Sunshine, Broadmeadows and Preston that were falling down. Um, we got uh, secured new offices and uh, fixed that up. There was no legal aid in those days provided by a legal aid office in Ballarat, Shepparton, Horsham or Warrnambool. We built new legal aid services there. Uh, and, uh, you know, Ballarat's the third biggest uh, city in the state of Victoria, uh, second to Geelong, was critically important. They're, they are now part of the fabric of access to justice in those communities. Uh, there are a whole range of other things. We built a family dispute resolution centre um, to complement our family law practice, which was acknowledged as one of the best in the country. That's still going. It was called Roundtable Dispute Management and those services. So we were flush with money and we had a great time doing what the legislation, the legal aid access we had to do, which was uh, provide legal aid services to people who couldn't afford it. That being the case, doing such good work, and it sounds like having fun doing it, or mm. very satisfying doing it, at the end of your five-year contract, you don't seek to renew it. Eight years, I did. I renewed it once. Eight years. So after eight years, you had enough of legal aid and you're looking for a new challenge. Why was eight years enough and what was the new challenge? Well, you know, it was a 60-hour-a-week job. Uh, we had uh, 500 staff at the end with a budget of $120 million and we had 16 locations across the state. We had funders, uh, money coming from the Commonwealth and the, uh, the state, uh, so we had two masters in a financial sense. It was a very big job. And after the end of year number seven, I was just feeling a bit tired. So I saw the writing on the wall and contacted the attorney and said, look, it was time to go. And did you have something in mind that you would like to do, that you'd like to go to? Well, the attorney very kindly said to me, and I'd been working with him for eight years, and sometimes it was a bumpy road, you know. Uh, you do knock heads with people, particularly when you're leading an independent statutory authority. But, we, you know, he'd worked with me for eight years and we'd done great work. And he said, what do you want to do? I said, well, gee, I've, I've always aspired to be a magistrate. And he didn't bat an eyelid. He just said, when do you want to start? And he wanted, he actually wanted me to start the next week. And I said, no, no, I need I need four weeks. I need a, I need a breather. Uh, so I had a four-week break where I didn't have a job. It was delicious time in my life. So in becoming a magistrate, how did you learn about judging? What, what uh, course did you take? Um, <laughs> was there a legal KPMG who taught you about the VLA or about management to teach you about judging? Well, no, there wasn't. But, you know, when I got my first job in the law in 1984, uh, it was only a few weeks, even during my articles, that my principal pushed me into court to start 
uh, appearing in court. So uh, by the time I went to Victoria Legal Aid uh, 15 years later, I uh, was a reasonably accomplished advocate and I certainly spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours in the magistrate's court dealing with all kinds of magistrates and I knew about the criminal law. And uh, so that was my training. It was on the job. From 2012 until the end of 2020, you were the supervising magistrate of the Victorian Drug Court. And that's obviously been an area of the law that's been close to your hearts in student days. Can you give us some background about the drug court? How did it come into existence? And what's the purpose of the court? Sure. Back in 1989, during the Ronald Reagan era, at the end of Reagan's time in America, the country was in the grip of a coast-to-coast crack cocaine epidemic. And the only response that the Reagan administration had was to build jails that were capable of housing millions of American citizens. And there were a small number of judges in, in Miami who were very frustrated. They were sentencing people for these drug-related crimes, locking them up. They were getting out of custody, getting back into drugs, into crime. Same faces coming back before the same judges. They've been working together for 20 years. And these judges were frustrated. They weren't reducing the burden of crimes on the community. They were certainly not rehabilitating the offenders and they were felt like professionally they were just being the gatekeepers for the prison system. So they started to go and have a conversation with the drug treatment agencies, the housing agencies, the employment agencies, and they brought those people into their court. And some people in the courts started to get control of their drug use. And some of those got crappy jobs selling, washing dishes behind hamburger joints for a few hours a week. But that gave them an income, which meant instead of sleeping in a dumpster, they could sleep in a room. And it probably wasn't a very salubrious boarding house, but at least they could pull their families together. And some of those people sprouted wings and flew away from the criminal justice system and never came back. And that was the first drug court back in 1989. And they were courageous judicial officers, because unlike uh, me, who's appointed for life, those people had to go and be elected by their communities every five years. And and the political wins were definitely against any kind of therapeutic approach. But they stood up, they said, no, back us. Their communities did, and they were right. So now in America, there's almost 3,500 drug courts. Uh, They're in 20 other countries. They're in every state and territory uh, in Australia, except the Northern Territory. But everywhere else, uh, they're flourishing. And it's, it's simple. We've got two goals. One is to foster the rehabilitation of the person with the uh, substance abuse disorder who's committing crimes as a result of that problem. Uh, and the second is to reduce the burden of crime on the community. And it works. Uh, the benefit of having drug courts around for over 30 years is that they've been evaluated to death. And we don't really know why they work, but we know what you have to do to make sure they work. There are 10 best practice elements. They're called the drug court key components. Put it into Google, up they'll come. It's a simple 30-page document. And if you can take it anywhere around the world, and if you apply the best practice elements diligently, you'll get about the same results uh, as every other drug court around the world. Um, So they're a game changer uh, for uh, people who are in and out of custody because of their uh, drug-related offending. When the drug court started here, prior to you becoming the supervising magistrate, was it well received? Did we as a community embrace it? Did we as a community know anything about it? Or was there work to be done there between the court and the community to educate us? There was a a lot of work to be done, Michael. Uh, The court kicked off in 2002. 
uh, and uh, almost immediately started to have positive results. And it was only at Dandenong, the drug court. The plan was to put it at Broadie and, and Preston as well, but it, that never happened. So uh, for 10 years, it operated quietly at Dandenong. In 2012, I'd been a magistrate for uh, a bit less than four years. The magistrate had done such a wonderful job running that court for 10 years. Margaret Harding said it was time to, for her to have a change. 10 years in the drug courts, a very, very big commitment. So she uh, went to do other work and uh, the chief magistrate at the time uh, started a recruitment process to get a magistrate uh, back into the drug court. And I didn't put my hand up for it because I'd only, I was junior in the magistracy. Uh, I thought it was a plum job. I thought lots of my colleagues with greater seniority would want to do it. And I found out six months later that the chief was having trouble finding a replacement and also found out the wheels were falling off the program because one of the best practice elements is consistency of a judicial officer and he'd had to churn 10 different magistrates through this program over the six-month hiatus while he was trying to find someone to take the role. And it went from 70 people on the program down to less than 40 and the chief had decided he was going to pull it apart. He couldn't find anyone to sit in it. And I heard this over lunch one day by sheer accident. And I rang the chief magistrate on a Thursday and said, is this true? You're going to close it down? He said, yeah, I can't find anybody to sit. And I said, I'll do it. And I was in there the next Monday. Tony, clearly the drug court is unique. It's not a court where you can plead not guilty to a charge and to fight the case. It's not a court where general deterrence is a main factor in the sentencing of people. How does the drug court work? How is it different? Well, it starts off being different by virtue of the Magistrates Court Act, which says that so far as the uh, principles of sentencing are concerned, general deterrence, specific deterrence, retribution, etc., the drug court's objective is to protect the community from the commission of crime by rehabilitating the drug offender. So that switches the order of the principles of sentencing and protects the work of the court from appeals because general deterrence isn't the primary consideration, it's rehabilitation. The other special part of the court is that it involves a person serving a prison sentence in the community. Now, that's very unusual uh, nowadays. Suspended sentences were abolished in 2014. But it is a Damocles sword that hangs over a person who's on the drug court uh, program to do well. Otherwise, uh, they'll be returned to custody to serve that sentence. Tony, can I just clarify, a prison sentence served in the community what does that mean in practical terms? If people's offending and prior convictions aren't serious enough to warrant a jail sentence, applying the normal sentencing rules, they don't qualify for the drug court. So the drug court is a program that focuses on the high risk, high needs, serious offender who's committing crimes at a rate that no other sentence but jail is appropriate. So we sentence them to the appropriate term of imprisonment, up to two years jail, uh, and uh, they serve that sentence in the community. They're actually released into the community, and for every day they're on the drug treatment order, they've served one day of their prison sentence. So at the end of the order, which can last up to two years, and often does, uh, they've served their full sentence. So they actually literally do serve that in the community as long as they comply with the requirements of the program and they don't commit offences or serious offences whilst they're on the order. You say comply with the requirements of the program. 
What are those requirements? It's incredibly uh, intense. So at the first phase of the program, the stabilisation phase, phase one, our participants have to do a supervised urine screen three times a week. Firstly, so that we know what they're using, and secondly, so we know if what we're doing is effective. They are assigned a case manager. They have to see that case manager once a week for at least an hour for supervision. They're assigned a clinical advisor who's responsible for the development of treatment plans and the monitoring of people through treatment. They have to see that person once a week in the early weeks and months of the order. They're uh, assigned a drug and alcohol counsellor. They see once a week during the currency of the order on phase one, they have to come into court and see me once a week. Uh, and I have an over, uh, overall supervisory role once I bring people uh, into uh, the drug court program. Uh, and I uh, work with participants, try and encourage them to keep going in the right direction. And I uh, apply classic behavior modification techniques to achieve that. So it's super intense, but not only do they have all of that work to do with the drug court team, uh, they will have work to do with our housing officers. So we've got housing officers in the court. We've got a, 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 a stock of public housing, uh, which is essential to our success with people. If people haven't got safe, stable housing, they're not going to succeed. If you and I didn't have safe, stable housing, we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation today. It's critically essential. They will have their pharmacotherapy doctors in the community, their psychologists, their psychiatrists, uh, they will have their adult education program teachers if they need that, if they need men's behaviour change programs, they'll have that. Dentistry, uh, anything that they need, we will supply them. It's what Patrick McGorry calls the scaffold of success. If we're going to treat people for their substance abuse disorders, their physical health and mental health disorders, we need to put the material and therapeutic supports around them. If we don't get that right, uh, then people will, will fail. So it's super intensive. We often have people uh, involved in two or three drug court appointments a, a day. And they're so busy that Centrelink will pay them new start without requiring them to look for employment on phase one of the order. And we know that keeping people busy, just keeping them busy, even if we've stuck them in a corner and got them to count nuts and bolts, it's therapeutic. So uh, the, the, the very busyness and the intensiveness of the program is part of the magic that makes it work. And you said that is phase one. There are other phases as well? Yeah, the order's structured into three phases. So phase one is the stabilisation phase, and that's the most intensive phase. Three times testing a week, case manager once a week, clinical advisor once a week, seeing me once a week, etc. Phase two uh, uh, comes along if someone's been on the program on phase one for three months and is turning up to everything and is demonstrating control of their drug use, not abstinence, but control, you know, two or three urines are clean out of five or six, they can go to phase two. Now, on phase two, we back off a little bit. I don't see them weekly, it's fortnightly. They don't have supervision with their case manager weekly, it's fortnightly. We give a little bit more responsibility and time and space to the participant because they've got control of their drug use. Now, if they're on phase two for at least three months, they're still turning up to everything and they're demonstrating serious control. You know, five out of six urine tests are negative then they can go to phase three. On phase three, we back off again. Uh, I don't see them fortnightly, it's every four weeks. They don't have supervision fortnightly, it's every four weeks, etc. We give them a lot of space. And the objective of phase three is that they are preparing for reintegration into the community. So we insist that they're involved in employment or training or some other activity to set them up for the completion of their drug treatment order. 
if they've been on phase three for six months and the last 90 days are totally abstinent of any drugs, including alcohol, they can graduate early. So it's possible to get through this order in 12 months. If you nail phase one in the minimum time, phase two and phase three in the minimum time, that very rarely happens. People have relapses. Recovering from drug dependence is not a linear recovery. There's always three steps backward and one or two steps forward, sometimes five steps forward and one step backward. If they have a relapse, we will bring them down a phase. We'll increase the support and supervision. If they're not turning up to commitments, we'll bring them down a phase and we'll stabilise them and then they can start their march up the phases again. Uh, so it's a very flexible program that tailors intensity of treatment and support uh, depending on uh, the progress of the participant. And it's very important we do that because if we kept up the intensive support and supervision for the whole two years of the order and then suddenly pulled the rug from underneath them, uh, they would crash. We need to teach people resilience and we need to transfer responsibility for recovery to the participant. And we do that by that staged approach of stepping back and giving them more space and time, but responding if they if they crash and need extra support and supervision. Tony, to me, that sounds uh, enormously intensive of resources yeah. and people to support the offenders. What is the cost of the community and how does it compare with the cost of those people being in jail? Ah, well, uh, it's best illustrated by the financial analysis that KPMG did in their 2015 evaluation of the drug court at Dandenong. And they demonstrated that the cost of the program per annum is $1.6 million to the taxpayer. However, uh, people on the drug court program would, but for the drug court, be in custody doing that sentence. So we know to the to the precise hour that uh, we save the correction system 14,000 prison bed days per annum. Now in 2015, the cost of a prison bed day was $270, which adds up to $3.8 million. So Dandenong itself costs the taxpayer $1.6 million, but just in terms of direct revenue to our uh, prison system saves the taxpayer $3.8 million. That's a return on investment uh, of over 100%. You know, if you put uh, money in a bank nowadays, the best return you can get is 2% uh, if you're lucky. Uh, this is a massive profit-making program for the taxpayer. And so the Department of Treasury and Finance love um, the drug court for that. And that's just the prison bed savings. If you look at the cost savings to the correction system, the health system, the social welfare system, the judiciary, the uh, child protection system that is saved when people recover from their uh, uh, drug dependence, uh, the cost savings to the community are exponential. If I can just go off the drug court for a moment because that raises with me the question, with the exponential savings to us as a community mm -hmm. that the drug court brings, has anybody, including yourself, thought about other areas we could apply this model to, other areas in the criminal justice system where we could apply this model? Because it seems to me to be a win-win. It's a win for us in the community, but it's clearly a win for the people who do the program as well. Yeah, yeah. Are there other areas we could apply it or is offending through the use of drugs unique in some way? Well, uh, it is, uh, but there are other, there are other applications. Uh, 
of the drug court system uh, to other areas of the law. So we have a, a drug court in the Child Welfare Division of the Children's Court, and it operates out of Broadmeadows, and it's been evaluated and is achieving some very strong success. Uh, and so that's working with uh, adult parents who are losing their children because the parents have a drug dependence. Uh, and applying the same principles, the drug court there are teaching those parents how to move away from their drug use in order to reunite with their children. So the driver there is not the carrot uh, and stick of, of, of going to prison or staying out of prison. It's actually getting your kid back. In the United States of America, they've got a range of different uh, courts based on the drug court principles. They've got Native American courts, so uh, Native American citizens who uh, are in trouble with the law have specific courts, much like our Koori Court, dedicated to their recovery but using drug court principles. They've got veterans courts. So as you will be aware, the United States send hundreds of thousands of their troops overseas all the time to fight these uh, wars offshore. They come back with post-traumatic stress disorder, which leads to all kinds of um, drug use and offending behaviour. So they've got specific veterans courts set up using drug court jurisprudence to address those people's problems. So it is a, a model capable of being applied to other different problems. Something obviously for our policy makers to think about. William and Lonsdale is brought to you by Greenslist, one of the leading multidisciplinary barristers lists in Australia. Greens List believe in promoting conversation around the ideas and issues that shape not only our legal system, but our wider community. You started with one drug court in Dandenong. Yeah. Where are we now in terms of the spread of the drug court? <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's absolutely... Uh, on the march, which is great. Uh, so the uh, criticism of postcode justice is now of less force than it was when I started in 2012. When the Andrews government was elected in November 2014, they came to power with a promise to produce an ICE action plan within 100 days of being elected. The Premier established the uh, the Premier's ICE action task force. By uh, sheer good luck, I suspect, I was invited onto that task force. So so early February uh, 2015, I found myself sitting at a table with the Premier, uh, the Health Minister, the Chief of Police, uh, the Special Minister of State. I was sitting next to the Attorney General. Boy, it was high level um, and the oxygen was thin and it was amazing. But when we went around the table and talked about what solutions we might want to discuss, my hand went up in the air. I handed over across the KPMG evaluation, which was about a month short of being published. So it was complete, but we just hadn't um, published it. That was the window that opened the government's eyes to the effectiveness of this jurisprudence. And through that process in 2016, they invited us to set up a new drug court in the city at the Melbourne Magistrates Court, two and a half times the size of Dandenong. That's been done, uh, is up and running, uh, and we've recently been invited to set up more drug courts. Uh, we're going regional uh, to Shepparton and Ballarat, uh, and indeed the Attorney-General has uh, funded a pilot of the drug court in the County Court of Victoria, so a higher jurisdiction. Uh, and there's business cases in the, in the pipeline for more courts. Uh, it's a jurisprudence that, that needs to be in every major region in the state. Uh, we need them in Latrobe Valley and Geelong. 
other areas. Um, and because they save the taxpayer money and because they uh, contribute to depopulating our prison system rather than increasing the prison system population, uh, I think that will all come in due course. As well as the KPMG report or evaluation showing that it saves us money, what else did it show in terms of recidivism and things of that nature? Yeah. Did it show the courts successful and beneficial in other ways as well? Yes, indeed. So the, the two aims of the court are to reduce uh, the burden of crime on the community and to rehabilitate the offender. Uh, so uh, taking the reduction of crime on the community, uh, KPMG demonstrated that uh, for all of the drug court cohort, uh, two years after the end of their connection with the drug court, that group show a 30% reduction of recidivism compared to the control group. That's quite remarkable, uh, given that we're dealing with the high-end, high-risk offenders who would otherwise go to jail for their offending. On, in terms of rehabilitation, the uh, program, the evaluation by KPNG demonstrated that 54% of uh, people who had uh, any kind of contact with the drug court um, showed measurable improvements in uh, medical health psychological health and uh, risk to um, uh, drug and alcohol abuse. So substantial benefits that are measured across those uh, objectives, but also uh, more stable housing, better family relationships, greater uh, employment prospects. So the benefit to the life of the participant that has some connection to the court, even if they don't graduate, um, is, is measurably beneficial. The program itself has an overall 40% success rate. So before people even start to lift a finger to do the work we require them to do, they've got an almost 50-50% chance of succeeding. That 40% made up of two cohorts. 17% of people who come onto the program graduate. They're the ones that get through at least six months of phase three with the last 90 days completely abstinent. And they're a huge success. They're employed, they've got their families back, they've got stable lives, and they fly off uh, and become wonderful contributors to the community. But there's a second group that we also count in the success basket, and they're the people that we get to the end of the two years. And we know if we can get people to the end of the two years uh, of the program without seriously reoffending, that they are also uh, successful. Because we measure their drug use so thoroughly, it's at least twice a week, uh, whatever phase you're on at the drug court, we know that their drug use is uh, either gone or dramatically changed. So even if they're still occasionally using, we know it'll be occasional cannabis or a glass of wine rather than injecting methamphetamine. And in terms of their contact with the police, uh, we also count those people as a success because that's so easy to measure. So if they do come to the attention of the police, and some of them do, uh, we know it's for offences that are 67% less serious than the offences that brought them onto the program. And anecdotally, it'll be an unlicensed driving uh, rather than um, trafficking drugs. Uh, so they're also counted in the success basket. Now, that means that 60% of the people that we put on the program don't make it. They're, th they're, this, they're, they're three different types of people. There are people who commit serious offences on the program and we don't hesitate. Uh, we cancel their orders and they go to jail to serve the sentence that hangs over their head, plus whatever they did in their reoffending. The second group that don't make it are the ones that abscond and I'll issue a warrant for their arrest. They just think it's all too hard and they head off. 
and sooner or later they're arrested. They come back to me. Now, if they haven't robbed a bank while they're on the run, I'll give them a second go if they want it, but I'll have that conversation with them. You turned your back on this program. Uh, If you do that again, the message I'm getting is you're really not interested and I will cancel your order. And there's a small group that, that don't hear that message and they will have gone a second time and I'll cancel them. The third group that don't make it are the most interesting. They're the people we call compliant but non-responsive. They do everything we want them to do. They do supervised urine screens three times a week, see their clinical people, go to their doctors, come and see me once a week. What a nightmare that'd be to have your life for two years. They do everything we want. They don't commit offences. The only thing after 18 months or 20 months that hasn't changed is their rate of drug use. And we can see that because we get them to test so often. I'll cancel them because I know from long experience that the last six or four months, we're not going to get anywhere with them. It's just not their fault. They've done everything we want them to do. We have all kinds of tools in the toolbox to help people with their drug dependence, but the, but the profession can't cure everybody. Uh, we just don't have all the tools yet. We're getting better at it, um, but, but we don't have 100% coverage. It's not like a, a great vaccine, you know, that cures everybody. Uh, so I'll let them go, but they've done the hard yards and I won't lock them up. I'll just cancel their order. It's, it's absolutely uh, interesting and fascinating to hear about it, Tony. I, uh, I wonder whether are we heading down the track toward decriminalisation of drug use. Tony, listening to you describing your life as the supervising magistrate of the drug court, it seems that it must be an enormous workload, seeing offenders once a week and obviously multiple offenders once a week, plus the new cases that are coming in on a daily basis. I'm wondering how you cope with it all. I mean, what's a day in the drug court look like <laughs> oh, it's... from the magistrate's point of view? <laughs> well, it is hard work. When I review my participants in court, I precede that hearing by having a case conference with my team. So the whole team's present. I've already read in documents provided to me the previous day all of the urine screen results, how they're travelling with their drug and alcohol counsellor, what the issues are that they're being discussed with their uh, corrections officer, all of the things they're doing, doing during the week. So I've got all that under the belt because I get summaries the night before. We then have a conversation uh, in this case conference, which precedes the review of the participants with all the team members. We look at their behaviours. We make decisions about what we're going to do with our participants in respect of their progress. So if we see positive uh, things happening, we will reward those. Um, So uh, a clean urine screen uh, gets a reward. If we see negative behaviours, a missed appointment, for example, we sanction that bad behaviour. So part of my supervisory role is to use behaviour modification techniques, sanctions and rewards uh, for the behaviour that we see from our participants in order to motivate them to go down the right path towards recovery and to send clear messages when they do the right thing, that's the behaviour we want. And to send clear messages when they do the wrong thing, we don't want to see that kind of behaviour in court. So we make decisions around those incentives and sanctions. It's an evidence-based decision. Uh, There's a mountain of evidence about how to use incentives and sanctions effectively to change behaviour. And we have those conversations so that I'm right up to speed with all the issues and we're clear about what we want to do with people. So that case conference takes a couple of hours and then I'll start seeing the participants. And I'll get as many of them as I can into court at the one time so that 
Each of them can hear what I'm saying and see what I'm doing with their colleagues who are part of this big drug court community. Uh, and I'll have a short conversation with each of the participants, five to 10 minutes. Uh, I'll pick up on the key issues, uh, acknowledge the good work they've done. In the same way, I have to also point out where we, um, we want some improvement. I'll discuss those incentives and sanctions that we've imposed. If the participants have arguments about that, if they if they disagree, we've got a victim poll representative on the team and a legal aid lawyer on the team and they'll advocate one way or the other for the participants and we'll settle those incentives and sanctions. So hopefully I have motivational conversations to send people down the right direction. Now, if people have done the wrong thing and made decisions and done things that they clearly could have avoided, like telling us lies or missing their appointments or not coming to testing, I'll impose jail time for those indiscretions. It's very clear if someone misses a test, they know they're going to get two days jail for me. If they miss a counselling appointment or a supervision appointment, they know they're going to get one jail day from me. They go into a sanction bank and if those sanction days add up to seven, then I send them in to serve that time. Now, that's not by any means the end of their order. That's just keeping our participants accountable, accountable for things that we know they could have avoided. Um, and the converse applies. When people do the right thing, uh, we reward them. So on phase one of this program, for instance, abstinence is a distal goal. It's beyond most people on phase one. It's in the distance so far, it's on the other side of the hill and they can't see it. If someone on phase one comes in with a clean urine screen, we reward that very highly. We clap and uh, we cheer and I'll take some jail time. Literally clap and cheer. Absolutely. <laughs> Certainly applaud and, and thunderously slow because the team's all present in, the, in the, the review. And so that when we when I have a conversation with these people, the whole team are hearing it, you know, and, and so is everybody else in court. So we send a very clear message that that's terrific. I'll reduce the jail time that sits over their head. We make a fuss of that to send that message. But there are other rewards. We've got a goldfish bowl uh, for full of um, lucky dip prizes in the court. And when people do something special, I'll invite them to pull out a lucky dip. Now, most of the prizes are low value. It might be a, a new tube of toothpaste and a new toothbrush, um, or uh, it might be a, a gym towel or go to the front of the testing queue for the urine testing, which they do three times a week on phase one. But there's one or two $25 gift vouchers uh, in there or, or a couple of passes to the footy in there, and they're a, a bit more value. The evidence is really clear. It's, it's not the value of the prize. It's the recognition and opportunity that people get when they do something a bit special. Uh, and, you know, the problem with methamphetamine is that it kills people's pleasure centres. It smashes the dopamine receptors, which are the receptors that, that, that generate a feeling of pleasure. And I haven't seen people smile on this order for weeks or months since they've been on the order sometimes because they're suffering from this hedonia as a result of long-term methamphetamine use. And I've seen people who've been invited to go to the goldfish bowl for the first time on the the order, crack a smile. And it's like the sun coming up, you know, it's so exciting um, because it's such a playful thing to do as well. 100% of the people that come onto this program are suffering uh, from uh, early childhood trauma. So everything we do needs to be trauma-informed. That's 100%. Each one of them has been the subject of abuse, of violence or neglect uh, over their childhood. So everything we need to do has to be trauma-informed. You know, we're very careful not to not to belittle people, and respectful conversations prompt respect. 
Tony, thank you very much for coming in today and telling us about the drug court. I personally think it is very important for us as a community to hear about what you do and what the, the drug court is doing for our community and for the participants in the program. And in a perfect world, we'd have other areas of the criminal justice system where the drug court system is used. It is uh, quite wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Show notes from today's episode can be found at greenslist.com.au forward slash podcast. There you'll find links to things talked about in this episode, a transcript of the show and some wonderful photos of our guests. If you're enjoying Lives in the Law, please tell your networks and subscribe, rate and review the show. It really helps others find out about us. Your host is former lawyer and Greenslist clerk Michael Green. Our show is produced by me, Catherine Green, mixed and mastered by Windmill Audio and recorded by Alex McFarlane, who also wrote and performed all the music for the series. With COVID restrictions limiting numbers inside the County Court of Victoria, we are currently recording our shows at Owen Dixon Chambers on the corner of William and Lonsdale Streets in our beautiful city of Melbourne. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of this land and pay our respect to their elders past and present. There is no doubt that conversations about justice have been taking place on this land for thousands of years and we are privileged to continue the discussion here today.